everybody to this episode of Conversations with Iris. Today we are joined by two experts in the field of Indigenous migration in the Americas. We have with us uh, Valentina Glockner, who is a professor in Center of Research and Advanced Studies, um, and that's based in Mexico. We're also joined by our colleague Walter Flores, who is a doctor at the Center of Studies for Equality and Governance in Guatemala. Um, so thank you so much for joining us um, from across the pond uh, for, this, for this conversation about indigenous migration. So I want to begin with a general question around what do we mean when we talk about indigenous populations, um, especially in the context of Mexico and Guatemala. Uh, Valentina, I don't know if you wanted to say something about the Mexican context to kick us off. Yes, thanks. Thanks, Jenny, for the invite. It's a pleasure. Um, well, first of all, I would like to say that when we speak and think about indigenous populations, one of the most important things to keep in mind is that we are talking about the living memory uh, of and the living testimony that other worldviews and other worlds are possible are, and are being kept alive. Um, for me, it's, it's the testimony that there are uh, life spaces and life possibilities beyond capitalism, beyond um, uh, imperialistic uh, ways of reproducing social, economic, and political life, and that there are um, po other possibilities to uh, think about the future and about future generations and their place in the world. So, um, and this is, I, I'm not trying to romanticize or trying to essentialize what uh, indigenous and contemporary native people uh, mean and, and contribute to the world. But um, it is very important to keep in mind that by endangering and dispossessing uh, native people and native and ancestral knowledge, what we are doing is impoverishing uh, the, the, the present world and impoverishing the legacy that humanity needs to, uh, will bring to the future generations. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Valentina. Walter. Yeah, so we talk about a, a specific social groups that have a unique identity. And as, a, as part of that identity is the, the central connection to land territory and, uh, and the natural habitat. And they have also a very ancestral uh, knowledge and also connection as a, as a social groups. And in Guatemala and Mexico, um, both countries have quite significant indigenous populations. Is that correct? So great. Guatemala is 45% of the total population. Mexico is around uh, 10, 14% of the population. And what is very important to keep in mind is that uh, this is a, a category, an identity that is self-prescribed. And so, I mean, obviously, you know, we know that there is significant migration from Guatemala and Mexico. We're reading a lot in the newspapers about uh, migration north um, up to the United States and Canada. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering what's specific about indigenous migration within that, that overall context of people on the move in the region. Right now, we can talk of very specific and, and um, worrying dynamics. 
that are uh, at the same time that are not new. Um, it, uh, it's important to say that indigenous migration is a very broad and complex phenomena. It's not, you know, it's not uh, unilateral as well. We, we can talk about uh, forced displacement from ancestral territories because of uh, transnational extractivist companies. And there's also a, a, a maybe more slow motion and less visible uh, also forced displacement, forced by uh, economic inequality and structural violence, forcing people to leave their native territories, to leave their native or their livelihoods, to be able to to produce, to migrate and, and produce working in harvests, in industrial harvesting uh, um, zones in Mexico, like uh, wage laborers. Uh, and this, this has been happening uh, for many, many decades since Green Revolution. And this is not only uh, inflicting like a lot of pressure and, and suffering in families who have to uh, abandon their families, their native uh, uh, territories. And this also puts, uh, interrupts the, the normize, normal cycle of, of uh, campesino or agricultural production, the reproduction or so social, religious, spiritual, and political life. Um, so basically, we have this economic displacement that goes more slow, slowly and that uh, is driven by economic uh, exploitation. And we have forced displacement caused by drug cartels and extractivist mining and dam uh, projects. Thanks, Valentina. That's super comprehensive. And, and Walter, what about the situation in Guatemala? Yes. Uh, what I would add, because I agree with everything that Valentina said, I would only add that what is specific about the migration indigenous population is that it is a survival strategy for them. Is it not a is it not like uh, in many cases of migrants uh, way to improve economic well-being, but it's survival. And you can um, almost readily easy identify a structural oppression as part of the causes of the migration. So a structural in a long standing oppressions that is related to that migration. So that's uh, this unique groups with unique identity that share a common history of a structural and long-standing oppression in which migration is a strategy for survival. Absolutely, and, and I know we've talked before, Walter, about the impact of climate change on, on some of these uh, indigenous migration uh, strategies. I wonder if you could say something about that. Yes, uh, climate change is becoming a, like a, the most recent uh, effect that is imposing on all the structural, uh, all the structural oppressions that, that have been occurring into, into migrant population. And it is also affecting mostly indigenous territories. And prior, prior to climate change, the living conditions of many indigenous uh, population were already very vulnerable because of the long-standing exclusion and oppression. So climate change just made things a lot more difficult. I mean, if you, it's very different to face the effects of climate change if you are in a more or less improved living conditions 
than if climate change is affecting you when you're already living in a very, very poor, in a very, in a very vulnerable living conditions. So this is just adding to everything that has been affecting for centuries uh, indigenous populations. And is there similar kind of dynamics in these communities around, you know, often it might be the kind, a kind of younger male in the family who, who's the first person to migrate or, you know, is it more of a kind of, is there a gender dimension that we see or, you know, is, are we talking about a family migration? Obviously, this, these are generalizations, but I'm just wondering about if there are any specific trends. In the Mexican case, um, you can um, you can talk about very different uh, and many uh, trends happening at the same time. Forced displacement has hit um, rural and indigenous communities harder because um, they are often they are not very welcome because of their uh, uh, language, their their uh, livelihood, and it uh, and maybe even religious beliefs. It's it's not easy for them. Uh, it's not easy. I mean, for in any circumstance, but it it's has become even more complex when uh, whole communities are displaced to find um, the strategies to cope and survive with this forced displacement because of these uh, um, reasons or particularities. And also government uh, strategies to try to respond even uh, which are very scarce, often lack the knowledge of these specific specificities, religious, linguistic, cultural specificities. And within that uh, phenomena, um, it, both uh, forced displacement because of violence and forced displacement because of climate change are often impacting women and children even more. Um, women in some part because of their traditional involvement in, in domestic labor, in keeping household and, and reproducing life within the community and the household, they, they often have to carry the burden of water scarcity, land theft, land dispossession, and, and, and the way that climate change is affecting harvests and, and um, campesino labor and livelihoods. Are there kind of specific trends in terms of internal migration versus international migration? Yes, they, they, if, at least in the case of Guatemala, the international uh, migration, uh, uh, the most relevant period was during the, the peak of the war, the internal civil war, in which initial population were very much uh, repressed in the 80s. So that was the peak of, 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 uh, of international migration. But after the peace accord, we could see that that was reduced. And now at this time, we are seeing a, an increase very similar to, to what happened in, in, in the 80s. Uh, but what's very important also uh, uh, to note is that although all the indigenous population face uh, vulnerabilities, but the extent of that vulnerability, it does differ among indigenous populations. Some of them have extreme vulnerabilities, such as the example that uh, Valentina was giving, or due to violence, or due to forced displacement uh, because of extractive industries. That is extreme vulnerability, or climate change, that's extreme vulnerability because families did not even have a chance to plan a strategy for, for moving. That's when everybody had to go, all the families, they, and they lost everything. 
which is very different when you're facing vulnerability, but you still may have some time and resources to plan whether the father is going to go first, whether is the, the oldest son or daughter, who's going first. So, so the possibilities of planning a strategy for survival is very different in that way. And what we are seeing is that uh, uh, families, uh, they have all different situations. Some families that although it's high vulnerability, not extreme, as the other families that are facing a displacement, either into the countries or displacement that have been forging even to flee internationally. And, and is there a, a suitable response to the specific vulnerabilities of indigenous migrants? Do you think, I mean, you know, we've, we've seen in you know, the last decade that, for example, the UN system has, you know, really done a lot of work on protecting indigenous rights. And we've had a simultaneous kind of boom in, you know, with the global compact on refugees and the global compact on migration. And I'm wondering if in your experience, these, these two different international rights agendas are speaking to each other effectively. The limitation that I see is that the indigenous rights and protections only apply when they are in the territories. But this is, doesn't really apply when indigenous are on the move, indigenous family are on the move. So that's, that's the most important gap that I can recognize that uh, when indigenous families are forced to leave their territories, there is the justification by state authorities. Yeah, but they are not in the territories. So they just decided to choose to leave the territory. Well, they didn't decide to choose. They were forced to leave the territories. So in my view, there is a huge gap at the moment that the current protection that we have only works partially because in, in many states, it choose to ignore those protection, but partially works when they are in their territories. So that's what I think that that's a major gap that we need to develop new protections and new mechanisms, especially when indigenous people have been forced to leave their territories. It has not been the, 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 the choice, the decision. So we can ensure that if we decided that they needed the protection that we have at the moment, then that should continue if they are forced to move. So the rights are kind of land bound or territorially bound at the moment, if you like. Okay. And sometimes not even that. I mean, I, I, I totally agree with what Walter is saying, but uh, that structural inequalities is deepened when you look at uh, national co co um, constitutions. For example, Mexico has not even recognized indigenous people and native uh, nation as nations. We are, are recognizing them and we are uh, recognizing Mexico only as a multicultural country, right? So they are not, they are uh, not given enough guarantees and constitutional rights to be able to, to exert and claim for those rights and for that recognition. So they are still kept in a, in a second place within uh, a nation, within the nation state, and that is, that is some, something that will always prevent them from exercising uh, full rights. On the 11th of October, we have um, kind of Indigenous People's Day in the United States. You know, this has become kind of reframed, if you like, in recent years to kind of talk about especially Indigenous populations in the United States. And I'm wondering whether, because I, I know that both of you also, you know, have worked uh, worked and, and have collaborations with colleagues in the United States. I'm wondering whether you see, you know, space for a discussion of how 
the host state, the United States, can protect the specific rights um, of indigenous people on the move who arrive in the United States. Because I, you know, we see in the media often it's kind of like this homogenous mass and there are particular groups that are maybe made hyper visible like young men you know young mexican men or or women and children um but i'm wondering whether in this discussion of migration to the united states indigenous populations are being spoken about and and having their particular needs met there's a need of a broader and deeper conversation about this um i don't think they're they're their needs and their particular um, um, stories and and cultural and ancestral and linguistic uh, necessities are being met at all. Uh, I mean, we can say barely say that for for the rest of of migrant populations or displaced populations, right? So um, I think we need, a, we need a better understanding of what indigenous migration implies, what are their causes and long-term consequences. Um, and we need um, specific policies recognizing that uh, nation states have um, complex biases and, and structural inequalities that need to be addressed before thinking on transnational or at the same time of thinking into transnational policy and transnational solutions, right? Yeah, uh, what I see is that uh, uh, in general it's portrayed like a mi migrants are more or less uh, all, of they, all of them the same and they're seeking the same purpose or, or, or they are arriving into the border for, because of the same reasons. And that of course, that's not the case. So I think a lot of work that needs to be done is to, to, for the general public, but also authorities to understand that there is a huge uh, diversity of factors or, or the people that are, uh, that are uh, migrating or are on the move. And the history of oppression faced by some of them is a lot longer. And some of them may, may, this, may that be, probably the only or the final uh, strategy for survival that, that they may have. So I think we need to we need to do a lot more and better work and in, in, in not to or not to place all the migrants in the in like the, in the same box is that our understanding of the challenges of migrant populations on the move in general, it would be much better if we were to understand the histories and trajectories and, and the structural uh, uh, oppressions that, uh, that, that they have endured. Absolutely, thanks Walter. And I mean, even practical things, you know, obviously this huge knowledge deficit is, is one factor, but also just practical things in terms of language, right? So interpreting in, in, in reception centers, for example, you know, whether that's available in indigenous languages or, you know, sensitivity, if you said, Valentina, to, you know, certain religious practices or, or these kind of things. I mean, I think, I think we're quite far from those kind of provisions being recognized, aren't we, in, in a lot of the facilities where, where we're working. Yes, even, even indigenous medicine, I mean, sickness and health is not understood the same way that we are in urban contexts or, or 
quite uh, populations understand uh, uh, health and and sickness right so even even um, being able to understand uh, what what are the traditional answers and responses and, and traditional medicine to common sicknesses and to and, and to illnesses that we don't even recognize right in that don't even um, that that uh, Western medicine doesn't even recognize as 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 uh, as valid or as as if they don't exist, right? So even that, it's a huge challenge. I I was I was um, a few, couple of years ago. I was at a, at a shelter in the border in the Arizona border, and there were a couple of doctors struggling to understand the way that Kiche migrants conceived the body and conceived the, the sicknesses and the ailments that were um, making them sick and make them and and it was not just the, the parts or the organs of the body who were hurting or who were ill, but also uh, there was a huge role played by the, the nostalgia and the sadness of having left behind the family, the territory, and those things may seem anecdotal to some, but they are in truth, they are totally central to the way that the world is being lived, experimented, and the way that, that indigenous people, families, and cultures are present in the world and, and negotiate daily challenges uh, in, 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 this, um, in, this, in the world and in the daily life, but even more so in uh, dramatic, uh, happenings such as forced displacement or transnational migration. Well, I'm hoping that, you know, with the release of this, this, um, this conversation, we can make sure that indigenous migrants can be included in discussions uh, this 11th of October around, around uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, thank you so much, both of you, for your time. I know how busy you are. Mm -hmm.